Uh, well, almost two weeks ago, we had the midterm elections, and uh, prior to the election, the expectation, uh, what everybody was raving about is the Republicans were going to overwhelmingly win, overwhelmingly win the House, gain the majority in the Senate, even uh, see some very blue states like New York, Michigan, elect Republican governors. And some were describing, describing this as the red wave or red tsunami, but it was by Wednesday morning, became very clear that this was not going to happen, and even more so, more clear this past week. In fact, the Republicans barely gained the majority in the House, and they did not win the Senate, plus they lost many of these governorship races. Therefore, starting last Wednesday, the analysis began, the debate ensued, uh, to, answer the, to answer the question, why? What happened? Why wasn't there a red wave, but as some have called it, instead a red trickle or a red drip, a red mirage? You know, some say it's Trump, some say it's the lack of good candidates. Others say, well, the polls were just wrong, uh, or others point to the overturning of Roe. Whatever the reason, there are various reasons and analyses given as to why this happened. Now, why do I bring that up? Uh, just to kind of get your attention this morning, partly, uh, you know, church and politics, it goes well uh, together. But I bring this up uh, because when it comes to the Bible, we can have a similar experience. And what do I mean? Well, there are passages in the Bible uh, that are unclear. They're hard to understand. Hard to interpret, it's hard to figure out exactly what is going on, to you know, answer the why or the what question. It's difficult to understand what the author is trying to communicate, and so there is debate, there's opinions given, there's ideas put forth. And the first four verses of this passage is one of those hard-to-understand passages in the Bible that has much debate surrounding it. In fact, Ken Hughes, a commentator, says the story opens with what all agree is the most debated text in Genesis the CSB Study Bible says this brief portion of Genesis is one of the most controversial sections of the entire Bible. Major disagreements surround each of these verses. Careful study of the Hebrew text does not end the debates. If anything, it only sharpens them. So thank you, Dan, for giving me this passage here this morning. <laughs> well, we're going to enter into this debate. We're not going to stray away from it, but we're going to kind of enter into it. We're going to enter into it looking at three sections here. It's wickedness goes wild, verses 1 through 5. There'll be sorrow and judgment that ensue, verses 6 and 7. And a glimmer of hope remains, verse 8. So section 1, wickedness goes wild. Verses 1 through 5, they serve as a record of the degeneration or the decline of human culture. And we see this kind of in two categories. There's unmitigated lust and violence is uplifted. This unmitigated lust, verse 1, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. The population is exploding. That's the idea. They're multiplying. The command to multiply is happening, but not in the way that God had intended it. See, as we enter chapter 6, what we find with the multiplication of man is also the multiplication of wickedness. And wickedness is not only increasing, but it's in one sense going wild, it's, which is to say it's unmitigated, it's become unhinged. Humanity has not evolved into something better, but rather something far worse. Look at verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for them. You know, notice the language here. The language uh, is a striking parallel to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where Eve in the garden, it says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. We see this same pattern in Genesis 3, again in Genesis 6, or Genesis, yeah, Genesis 6 with the sons of God. The only difference here is the object 
For Eve, the object was fruit. In Genesis 6, the object was these beautiful women. The sons of God, they saw. They looked at. Their, their eyes began to set upon these beautiful women, and then they took. They took any they chose as wives for themselves. And like Eve, there is a boundary cross. That what drove the sons of God here was not love but lust. It was not a care or concern but covetousness. It was not goodness but greed. What drove them is what Paul says briefly in, uh, is the fleshly nature in Colossians chapter 3. He says in Colossians 3, he says, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, or covetousness, which is idolatry. There was something more going on, something that drove them more than love for God. It was their flesh, their sin, what they saw. And this is oftentimes how sin takes place, is that we see something, and then we covet that thing, and then we go to take or get that thing at all costs. These sons of God saw these beautiful women, and the saw here is this lust, there's this covetousness, and then they went and pursued them and took them for themselves as their wives. Sons of God, at minimum, these lusty, powerful lot striving for fame and fertility, as one commentator put it. They're full of excessive pride and self-confidence. But who are these sons of God? Uh, This is where debate number one of these verses starts, is who or what are the sons of God? The sons of God that saw the daughters of mankind, saw that they were beautiful, and took them for their wives. Well, there's three common interpretations to this passage. I want to give you just the three general interpretations and then kind of where I land, where I'm at, at least as of 11.08 this morning, okay, because that could change. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ways this can go, and there's uh, a lot of depth to it, and we're just kind of scratching, in one sense, the surface of what there is in this passage. But the first view is this, the king's or aristocrat view. Uh, This view is that they hold the sons of God are these tyrannical human judges. They're men of uh, high social status. And they point to the word God, which in the Hebrew is the word Elohim, and how Elohim can sometimes be applied to people who have great social power. So Psalm 82 is a verse that people would point to. I said, if you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. These are people who hold uh, this position. And they say that the daughters of mankind were of this lower social class. And that this passage then is thought to teach or to indicate this possible abuse of these lower class women by these sons of God, or these licentious men of privilege, these kings, these people in high power and authority. That's one view. Second is descendants of Seth view. Uh, This interpretation assumes the sons of God were descendants of godly Seth. The line of Seth and the daughters of mankind came from the ungodly line of Cain. You remember chapter 4 gives the genealogy of ungodly Cain and Lamech and all these who were wicked people. And then you have chapter 5 comparing Cain with Seth and Seth's line, which seems to be a godly line. We know about Enoch who walks with God. Therefore, what these people who hold this mission have done is they've reasoned these verses describe the sons of God as the godly Sethites who began to size up the daughters of man, these beautiful women that are the, of the, the Cainites, and they took them for their wives. They married them, which of course then led to the dedication of 
the Sethites, the demise of the Sethite generation. As one commentator put it, uh, it's a nice and neat biblical interpretation. It's nice and neat. But there's also another interpretation that may not be quite as nice and neat, but I think uh, makes sense and I'm partial to. Again, at least at, it's 11-11 now, so I'm partial to this view right, right now because these things are, are hard to figure out. But I think this makes quite a bit of sense. It's the fallen angel's view. And in this kind of interpre- interpretation, it identifies Elohim for the sons of God, not as just simply heavenly beings, which oftentimes Elohim is describing these heavenly beings. That's what it means. But specifically fallen angels or demons, those who rebelled with Satan, the angels, the third that rebelled with Satan, and they became demons. Or demon-possessed men who had sexual relations with these daughters of mankind, impregnating them, resulting in the birth of the Nephilim. Now let me explain again my loose reasons for this. This is not uh, going to be in the statement of faith to become a member. You have to hold this position. There's a variety of positions people can hold. You're open to your, open to your own interpretation, but here's why I think this might make the most sense. The first reason is this. The New Testament passages that link fallen angels in the flood. So it's linking in the New Testament. There's passages that link angels to the flood here. Upon Jesus' death, uh, Peter alludes to Christ's preaching in 1 Peter 3 says, in which he, meaning Jesus, also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were in the past, in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now some would look at this and say, well, the spirits in the prison disobedient, that's just the people that lived amongst Noah's time. Well, I would think that too, except for my understanding is the word spirit in the Greek, which is pneumata, it uh, it is used in the Bible only to describe supernatural beings. In other words, it's not used to describe departed human spirits, but rather these supernatural beings. These supernatural spirits would make it feasible that these spirits that Peter is referring to could potentially be the same spirits that we're looking at here in Genesis chapter 6, which would be fallen angels. Next, then this verse, uh, verse is verse, or Second Peter chapter two, verses four and five. They reference Peter references these same angels. He says in verse four, for if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if He didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when the, He brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. The Peter then, he talks about these spirits who we uh, know these spirits are referred to supernatural beings. And then in Second Peter, he uh, talks about these angels who are cast or who sinned and they're cast into hell. Now, who would he be referring to? Well, it seems the angels who rejected or rebelled against God. But then there's Jude chapter six and he talks about angels again. And angels who did not, not chapter six, verse six, and the angels who did not keep their position but abandoned their proper dwelling. And he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. The Peter again, or that Jude here is referring, it seems, to the same angels as Peter is talking about, as these spirits that he's referring to and connecting this to the flood. Now, it's important here, it's not just this. So, okay, we have angels connected to the flood, but then the second part of this is this, is the normal meaning for sons of God is angels. 
So when you read the Old Testament, there are times when God's people are referred to as sons, but the normal interpretation of the sons of God, the understood interpretation, unless otherwise made clear through context, is that it's referring to angels. So for example, the book of Job, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. So we know Satan is this angelic being and then there's these sons of God who come with Satan. The understanding here is also these other angelic beings who we would assume to be those who rebelled against God with Satan in the fall. Job chapter two, the same idea. One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also with them to present himself before God. Daniel chapter 3, he exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of gods, the gods. In other words, an angel there. And so the idea here is that these sons of God is not speaking about just simply some human, but some heavenly angelic being who is attached to leaving or doing something that is sinful and wrong at the time of the flood. Number three, then, this is the oldest view. The oldest view held. In fact, Jewish exegetes held this view, uh, uh, and you find this in sources such as First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Septuagint, the writings of Philo, as well as Josephus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this was also held by uh, many in the early church, held by early Christian writers like uh, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. Now, does that mean it's true? Well, no. It just is a helpful data point. This isn't like a new idea, a new concept but this is something that has been thought of or understood to be the case for quite some time. Fourth reason, last, is this, is that they weren't godly creatures. The Sethite view, the sons of God are described as godly line of Seth, but as one commentator said, the sons of God were not godly Sethite choir boys. Like They they weren't good men. They were wicked, lustful, power-driven people or men or uh, in uh, in this context. Now, a common objection to this view is found in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus talks about marriage and he talks about the resurrection. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so people point to this and say, well, look, uh, Jesus says angels don't marry. As far as we know that they are, uh, they're sexless. They don't have the anatomy of humanity to procreate. Therefore, these sons of God couldn't possibly be angels, let alone fallen angels. And though that's the case, we know a couple things. One is that we see angels appear in human physical form, Mark chapter 16 at the tomb, Jesus' tomb. We know that in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis chapter 19, that these men in Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to have sex with these two angels who are at Lot's house. So it's, it's plausible that angels are caping, uh, capable of taking human form. That would make sense. And maybe even to the point of replicating human sexuality or possibly reproduction. But I think there's another solution to that problem that makes even more sense, and that is that these angels, these fallen angels or demons, are actually commandeering the souls of men, as one commentator put it. In other words, they are possessing these men of high social status, kings, aristocrats, they, they themselves are possessed by demons. Now, we find demonic possession happening in the Bible, especially at the time of Jesus, And we find partly in some of these situations, the demons, they crave to be in some body of some form. One example of this is Luke chapter 11. When unclean spirit came out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for a rest. And not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house. I came from the house, the body. Returning to its house, or returning it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes 
bring seven other spirits more powerful or more evil rather than itself and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's condition is worse than the first. So there's this picture, this idea that the demons wanted to be in somebody and we see demons taking over or possessing human beings. And so what seems to be very possible here is what you have is a combination of ungodly, wicked, lustful, power-driven men and demons who then enter into these men. Now, how that all happens, I don't exactly know. But it seems that is the case. That's very feasible as to what would have happened. Now, some would say that's just unbelievable. Like, that's way too far-fetched. Like, that seems uh, bizarre, well, I agree, it does seem crazy, and it is hard to believe, but think about it. We have accepted things that are hard to believe as true as Christians. One, the virgin birth. I mean, that's a hard thing to understand and believe. Or the resurrection of Christ himself is a hard thing to comprehend at times and to understand exactly. And it, what's happened is much of our society and culture is we look at things that are, are, are spiritual, it's like, or we look at much of the world as just natural. Much of the world we see as this natural, and we say, you know, it's science. If I can't see it, taste it, smell it, touch it, then it's not true. But we forget that in the Bible, there is a spiritual world, an unseen world. That we'll see even as a moment that Paul describes in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 6, that our war is not against flesh and blood, that we know there's something more going on here. There's these, these, this spiritual battle that is taking place that we are in, but yet we don't always see clearly. And so what you find in this passage is that there is unmitigated lust and perversion, that Satan potentially is in the driver's seat having a stranglehold on humanity and therefore evil. If that's the case, it would make sense as to why evil has quickly multiplied and spread throughout the earth in the way that it has. But one question I've thought about, and maybe you've thought about this, is why? Why would Satan and demons do such a thing? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a specific answer. But I think we can make a reasonable assumption or speculation as to what may be the motivation for Satan and demons to do such a thing as to possess men, to have sex with these women, to have, I think is probably in the film, as we talk about here in a moment. One speculation, I think again, one reasonable motivation is this, is that the demons were attempting to pollute the human bloodline. Why? Well, remember what... God says in Genesis chapter three, he says to Satan, part of the curse is that what will happen is a seed from this woman will crush the head of the serpent. I think what is very reasonable is that they are attempting to pollute the human bloodline to prevent from the coming of the Messiah. They're trying to prevent from Christ from coming. The demons in Genesis six were attempting to prevent the crushing of the serpent or of Satan making it impossible for the sinless seed of the woman to be born. Now, I don't know that to be true, but I think about Satan and demons. They hate God, and they hate man who is the image of God. And I don't think they would want to die, and they see what's happening and have some idea of what's going on, and their hope is to pollute, to corrupt the bloodline of humanity in order to prevent Jesus from coming. Now, whether that is all true, or regardless of which view you may conclude, there is grievous sexual perversion 
And it's reached a new level. And it's not just even with the sons of God coming and taking these women. But you also have to understand that the culture at the time. You know, today we don't necessarily, uh, men don't necessarily go to their uh, fiance, or not rather fiance, rather their girlfriend's parents and ask for permission to marry them. That happens in a lot of cases, but it doesn't, quote, have to happen. In some ways, some of that has left our culture. But at this point in time, a father had to give permission for his daughter to be married. And what you find here then, which would make a lot of sense, is that if that is true, that that these fathers were not just allowing their daughters to be married to these men or these beings, but they are giving their full consent and permission. They're encouraging these unions, these unions to these men who may have been these demon-possessed, lustfully driven, wicked Men, As one commentator said, we must understand the girls' fathers as encouraging these unions just as pagan fathers pushed their daughters into fertility cults. Modern day, what that would mean is this. It's like, it's like giving your daughter to go uh, marry or be a part of the sex slave industry. You're just pushing her in that direction. And you think about that, how disgusting and wicked that is. That the earth at this point in time was driven, was just full of these lustful, driven men, and the fathers themselves, culpable, they're approving and encouraging these unions. It just shows how low the culture was, how parents were approving, they're complicit of their daughters marrying these demonic men. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, what about our society? When we look at our culture, our culture is pretty sexually diverse. What does that mean in relationship to Satan and demons? You know, homosexuality is exalted. I don't know if you pay any attention to what's going on politically, but the Senate nationally has just approved what's called the Respect for Marriage Act, which is anything but respect for marriage. It's trying to solidify, codify homosexual union. Transgenderism is glorified. Hospitals are performing trans surgeries on kids. We have people in positions of authority, sympathetic to minor attracted persons, a.k.a. pedophilia, We have companies and governments, schools glorifying sexual perversion. Our president of the United States sits down with a man who describes himself as a girl and says that this is just totally okay, totally approves. Nobody should ever say anything or take your, quote, right, freedom, whatever, away to be that. Just glorifying it. Are we demonized like Genesis 6? Well, I don't think we're exactly that same point, but I would say this. All, wherever sexual sin is not only allowed, but glorified and exalted, and those who disagree are punished, Satan is surely involved. And we live in a time and place where it's not just allowed, it is encouraged, it is taught. You send your kids to school and you have to think about what in the world are they going to teach You watch on television what in the world is going to come. And as Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers of this darkness, against against evil spiritual forces in the heavens, that we live in a spiritual world and a spiritual battle in which Satan and demons are real and are moving, attempting to move the culture in a direction that is away from God. 
And so we find our culture where there's lust becoming more and more pervasive and glorified, exalted, and we surely find in this culture where the demonizations of marriages are happening and there's unmitigated lust. And there's also this, there's a violence uplifted. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Now, what were the Nephilim, right? That's what you all came here for this morning. This is the million-dollar question. What are the Nephilim? Well, here's a picture of the Nephilim. I don't know if you saw Noah, the movie Noah. I did not see that movie, but uh, there's some pictures here. See, they're walking, and that guy looks like he's kind of crying, like he has like a teardrop by his eye. I don't know. Uh, But that is not the Nephilim. I don't know what the Nephilim are exactly. Um, What I do know is it describes them as the powerful men of old, the famous men, and it seems to directly tie the Nephilim to the sons of God procreating with the daughters of man. They're not aliens. They're not rock monsters. They're literal physical beings produced, I think, again, from the union of the sons of God and the daughters of men. In fact, according to Hebraic and other legends, again, extra-biblical writings or non-biblical writings, Book of Enoch, they were a race of giants who did acts of great evil. And that's the consensus, is that whatever exactly their DNA is, so to speak, they were men as one commentator put, who thought only of evil all the time. That they were understood to probably to contribute to this violence that was filling the earth. They were told about in Genesis 6, 11, how the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with wickedness. The word corrupt, violence. The earth is filled with violence. If you imagine if there is evil, there is violence. And so the picture that Moses paints of this culture and society is one that is thoroughly wicked, which leads to this very strong statement in verse 5, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The synopsis of the state of humanity describing the intensity and the pervasiveness of human wickedness. It's widespread. It's not confined to just a small group of people or to a localized place on earth. But it is everywhere. And it's not just with every per- or everywhere with every person, but it's all the time. Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil. We can imagine evil, but can you imagine living in something where it's nothing but evil all the time? And the word inclination, it comes from the Hebrew word that's used for a potter forming something. It implies design or purpose. That is, the human heart was intentionally and purposefully pursuing evil, crafting up evil, doing evil, and not just every so often, but constantly. There was no relenting. There was no repenting. There was no hesitations about their sin. As one commentator said, lust was their medium and violence their method. And where did this evil live? Where did it come from? The human heart. The evil that's out in the world at that time and in our time is not just out there, but it comes from in here. 
And so this statement serves as an emphatic statement of where wickedness actually lives, which is in the human heart, every human heart. And you notice here, this is a humbling reminder because God sees all. When the Lord saw, unlike Genesis chapter one, when God looks at creation, he says, it is good. He looks down at what he sees at his creation and he sees it is utterly wicked, consumed with evil, lust, and violence. It's a humbling reminder. In some ways a terrifying reminder or something that should terrify us that God sees all sin all the time, whether in broad daylight or the darkness of your room, whether it's external or internal. He sees it. That humanity, that we, are people are, we as people are unable to escape the seeing eye of God. So just like we see and then we oftentimes we covet and pursue God sees. And he sees more than just the external behavior. He sees, sees down into the heart's mind, soul of every human being. And so what is God's response to this evil? Well, there's sorrow and judgment ensue. The first part, God's response is one of sorrow. Verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made the man on the earth. He was deeply grieved. You know, what does it mean that the Lord regretted? Now, some are like, man, that's the controversy in this passage. Nah, not really. <laughs> People don't debate over this as much as the other things. But what does it mean that God regretted? We think of regret, we think of things in terms of, I did something wrong, I wish I had not done that, I wish I could take that back. I was around 11 so years old, playing football in the streets, in the street with my neighbor friends. My dad's on the porch uh, watching. I dropped some passes, my dad's kind of heckling me. I dropped a pass, he heckles me again, and that time I just kind of explode. I remember yelling at him, shut up, you stupid expletive. And I watched my dad's face go from laughing to just sheer anger. And I was like, uh, can I stay at your house tonight? <laughs> In that moment, there's regret. That I had done something wrong. I had sinned, and I wish I had not done that. I could undo it. I could take it back. But that's not the case here with God. God has not done something wrong that he wishes he could undo. His regret is tied to his creation and what they have done. And that his regret here is this idea of grieving and sadness. It's brokenness over humanity that he once declared as good, but is now anything but. They are instead wicked, consumed with violence and corruption. And he's grieved not because he needs us in order to feel good about himself. He's not insecure. He's not, I need friends to make myself feel better. That's not how God is. But he is grieved because of what it means for us. Because he wants what's best for us. That what's best for us is not to reject God, but to walk with God, as Dan put so well last week. That we... What is best for us, what God wants for us, is for us to be in relationship with him. And so God is grieved at the brokenness, grieved at the wickedness. And then second, his second response is there's judgment. And there's two judgments. One is life is shortened, Genesis 3, or 6, 3. My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. 
their days will be 120 years. Now, I don't know if you could believe this or not, but there's debate about what this means. There's two general interpretations, okay? 120 years means that the lifespan of humanity is going to be shortened to that, or that's the amount of time until the flood. Now, both, I think you can argue, both are plausible interpretations. Uh, my opinion is it's referring to the time or the life, uh, the age of somebody before they die. People were living hundreds of years. What you see is after the flood is that life span begins to shorten, not immediately, but over time. It's like it's gradually implemented to the point where people are living 120 years or less. And Moses think what he's saying is this, is the Hebrew word for spirit is the word ruah, which can mean spirit or breath. And we know that we only have life because of God, that God has breathed life into humanity. He breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and his lifeless body became alive. And that life, our life, is sustained by the very breath of God. And what God is saying is that life, breath, that gives us and sustains our life will be taken away from us, that we will die. And there's now a natural limit on humanity's mortal existence. Why? Because of evil. There's a second judgment, and that's total destruction, or what we understand to be the flood. He says, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, the creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And here God responds with this irrevocable judgment, the erasing of mankind and all that he has made. Everything destroyed, as we know in the following verses, this flood upon the earth, washing everything away. Washing humanity away. And I tend to think this actually serves as another point as to why I think the fallen angel view actually makes sense. Because humanity has been corrupt and there's lots of problems. But it would make sense that if God would actually have to destroy all of society or most of it as we know that he saves Noah and we'll see in a moment. Because the, the Satan and demons, have, they have corrupted the human bloodline. There, there's, there's, a, there's this attempt to destroy the coming of the Messiah. It would make sense to me that why God wipes everything away is because humanity has become more than just corrupt in of themselves, but there's a demonic influence into that corruption that's taking place. God is, then destroys everything. And we'll see this more in the weeks to come with the flood, but in this passage there is a glimmer of hope that remains, and that's found in verse eight. Noah, however, found favor with God favor with the Lord. There's this one sentence that brings hope. It gives humanity hope. Like Enoch, Noah walked with God. Like Enoch, he had a relationship with God that he knew God. And what happens to Noah? Well, Noah, Noah's life is spared by God. The Noah is saved from the flood that comes to wash the earth clean of its wickedness and its evil, that God has mercy on Noah's life. And it's not that Noah did anything, it's that God did something, that God has saved him. And here's the reality. We, as human beings, are wicked. We are sinful and evil. Sin and evil has consumed us, as Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working at the disobedient. We all too all lived, previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh that we should not think that somehow we are better than those who were washed away by the flood, but to understand that we carry the same problem. We are sinful. We have rebelled against God. We have turned away from him. In like then, God now sees. He sees sin, our sin. In like then, there is coming a great judgment against mankind due to their sin. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 24 says, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of man will be. That there's these days coming when our world, our earth, will become more like the days of Noah, corrupted by evil like the days of Noah. And then the Son of Man will come. The Son of Man will come for what? Well, in part, to judge. There's an impending judgment. And the judgment will be is, did you rebel against God? Have you sinned against God? If the answer is yes, then you will experience eternal separation from God in hell. But like then, there is also now hope. Hope for us to be rescued from the coming wrath. That just as God saved Noah from his impending judgment, God has offered salvation to us from the coming judgment for our sin through a man, Jesus Christ. That our hope, our only hope is in God and in God's great grace through his son, Jesus Christ. I I saw this uh, verse or poem this week by Julia Johnston, says, Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. That what is our refuge? It is Christ. He is our refuge. He is our hope. He is the one who can spare us, save us from the wrath to come, so we might live forever in the presence of God. Pray, Father, we thank you for Christ who came and died in our place to pay for our sin. I pray for anyone here this morning who has not repented and turned to Christ that they would do so. There is an impending day of judgment, a day in which you will return, Jesus, that you will come back to judge the world in righteousness. And the only way that we will be found righteous, free, guilty of sin, unblemished, is through your sacrifice the shedding of your blood. I pray for those this morning who do not know you, they would repent and put their faith and trust in you, Jesus. And I pray for us who do, God, that we would just rejoice, God, that we would be reminded of how good and gracious you have been to us, that you have spared us. God, you've spared us, that you've promised us that we would never be forsaken because Christ stood in our place and was forsaken for us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.